Sorry for that awkward silence there. I'm the greeter today, so I get to extend the Grace Life welcome, and I want to do that on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ and behalf of Grace Life Church. We do this every single week. We, we try to practice what Romans chapter 15, verse 7 says. It says, welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you. That's a, that's a powerful thing to do every week. How have we been welcomed uh, by God through Christ? Wholeheartedly open arms, right? And, and that's our welcoming community here. We welcome you wherever you are at, whatever tragedy, circumstance, pain, suffering, or celebration you've came from, we welcome you. The Lord welcomes you. And we remind ourselves of that every single week. I think we have a slide. We do a traditional greeting that's, that's become meaningful to us. This is kind of our Grace Life liturgy, if you will. If you will. So uh, if you want to read this or if you just want to let this soak in, to all who mourn and need comfort, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need strength, to all who mourn and need comfort, to all who sin, yeah, I went back there a little bit, didn't I? To all who sin and need a Savior, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to whoever else will come, this church, Grace Life Church, opens wide her doors in the name of the Lord Jesus and offers you welcome. So welcome to Grace Life. Now, we, uh, we also have a Q code that we put up here. If, if you're a member here and you have the Church Center app, uh, you can just tap on that and it takes you to the same place. If not, this is, this is an okay time to take out a smart device, snap a picture, and those of you watching from home, you can certainly do that as well, that it will take you to... The screen that you see up there on that phone where you can read the scripture they're going to read in a minute, where you can give, where you can read the blog. we got some great blogs that Matthew Carr, our discipleship, discipleship pastor, has been writing and posting there. Uh, you can just look at the resources that are there. Uh, lots of different helpful resources that you can find there. Um, but now we want to turn our attention to the Word of God. We're going to read from Romans chapter 7. So make your way there. And while you do, I'll introduce myself. If I haven't had the, the joy or the pleasure of meeting you, I'm Tommy Clayton. I'm the lead pastor here. This is Grace Life Church. We are in our seventh year as a church plant, and we are going through the book of Romans. And this is a, this is a powerful book, and we decided to, uh, to go through it finally. Our, our elders talked about this, and we prayed about it. We felt like it was the right time. This is a book that celebrates the gospel this is Paul making known to the church at Rome what the gospel doctrine was and what it does, what it produces. Uh, he wants us to understand the gospel. He wants us to celebrate the gospel. He wants us to share the gospel uh, with one another, with ourselves, and with, with a dying world in need. And so we've called this series Engage because ultimately the truths in the Bible are to help us engage with God, help us engage with one another, in a deep and mysterious way, help us to engage with ourselves, know who we are, why we do the things we do, how true and lasting change comes about, and how to engage with the world. So turn to Romans chapter 7. Yes, I know that we read these six verses the last time I was here, but I didn't finish. I told you the last time that uh, that was just an introduction, and I really did mean that. It's just an introduction. This is a really deep chapter. It's a powerful chapter, and I don't want to skip out on any of the good news that we're going to find here. So why don't we pause, and we'll pray, and then my time will officially start for the sermon, okay? Man, it's, it seems so quiet in here today. People are, are either really reflective 
or it was a late night for a lot of people, right? And that's okay. Hey, uh, you came to the right place. So let's set our hearts and minds. You know what you're doing today just by showing up here or just by sitting at home and watching, doing what you're able to do. You know what you're doing? This is a beautiful resistance. Do you realize that? You are doing what Psalm 16, I think verse 8, we talked about a few weeks ago, calls you to do. You are setting the Lord always before you. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. You're doing that. So I commend you. This is one of the most powerful means of grace that is so often neglected by Christians, sadly. It's showing up for gathering, for corporate worship, for prayer, for fellowship, for doctrinal instruction. And uh, I commend you for it. Thank God that he has moved in your heart to be here today. This is how we resist the, the world, the devil, and the flesh. So let's ask God, let's ask his spirit to come and to set our minds and our, our hearts, our affections, to just inflame them toward him. Lord, please, we are creatures of the dust. We are finite. We are limited on what we can do, what we can pay attention to, how we can learn and glean from your word. We know there are powerful things in this text before us. They're beautiful they're powerful, they're wonderful, and unless your spirit comes and teaches us and opens our eyes, it'll just be ink on paper, Lord. It won't be powerful, it won't be transformative, it won't be identity-shifting, behavior-altering. Uh, we we want to be challenged by you in a good way, in a helpful way, in a transformative way, but without your spirit, we're helpless to do that, Lord. Unless the spirit comes, this will be a, an exercise in futility and vanity, so I pray that you would empower the next few moments as we read the scripture, the most powerful thing we're going to do today, and as we seek to understand it together. And I pray all of these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Romans chapter 7, you can, uh, you can read that with me. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7 today. And uh, the title of the message today is Incentive. So Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So that you may belong to another. To him who's been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Verse 6. But now, you can, you can underline that or circle that or just feast your eyes on that. That's a glorious conjunction in the Bible. But now, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, I told you that Romans chapter 7 is a challenging chapter, and it's challenging for this reason because Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to us, brothers and sisters, to a church in Rome, and he is helping them understand something that 
to be really brutally, frankly honest with you, has baffled Christians for centuries. How are you and I, as followers of Jesus, as brand new Christians, converted, transformed, how are you and I supposed to relate to the moral law of God now that we're believers? What's our relationship to the law supposed to be? People have struggled with that. Even the most capable theologians, Bible scholars, and teachers have had to think really carefully about this because if we're not careful, we will fall off. There's a real slippery slope in understanding this. You can fall off on one side and what we might call legalism or moralism or even religion, thinking that you relate to God by your law-keeping. How well are you performing in your law-keeping? Depending on that will determine how much God likes you or loves you, how acceptable you are to Him. So that's an error on the left side or the right side. I'm, I'm not using those terms politically. Man, there's enough of that already, isn't there? On the other side, whether it's left or right, here's the other error. It's called, we talked about it a little bit last week, antinomianism. You may call it libertinism. It's like no law. That's what the word literally means. It's compound. Antinomos, against law. We don't need the law. God loves all of us right where we're at, unconditionally. He doesn't want us to change. Uh, that's, how God, that's how God rose. He doesn't ask for change. He doesn't demand change. So the law is basically canceled. So over here, you've got legalism, moralism, religion. And it says, uh, obey God and he will accept you. And over here, you've got antinomianism or license or libertine. And it says, there's no law. God doesn't care. And really, right here in the middle is a third way, and it's the gospel. It's the way that Paul is going to talk about, and it's going to tell us in this section, and really the whole chapter, something fundamentally has changed about you and I when we came to Christ, when we were converted. He's using really powerful, electrifying language here, and he says something foundational, something fundamental, something transformative happened to you that changes everything in the way you relate to the law. And he says what happened is you died. You died, and therefore, things have changed. You don't relate to the law the way you did before. You're not under the law anymore. You're not under it. And that confuses people, and it scares the heck out of some people that are religious, honestly. It scares them because they're like, whoa, whoa, time out. I get the last chapter. It says that we died to sin. That's great. Sin, bad. Dying to sin, good. But now he uses the same language. He says we died to the law. We're not under the law anymore. It no longer has dominion over us that scares people because that sounds like antinomianism it sounds like wait a minute you're saying we're not bound to the law we're not influenced by it we're not obligated to keep it and so paul takes this opportunity in this chapter to bring clarity and direction to what would otherwise be confusion and false teachers love as you'll you read all the epistles in the new testament anytime an apostle is writing a church it's usually because they fell into error on this point that's why he takes a whole chapter to explain it, and that's why we're taking several weeks to talk about this. Whew. So that's the introduction, all right? So here we go. We read the passage, and uh, here's the outline for today. I'll give it to you straight up. Man, th those are more long sentences for this outline, but that's okay. We're going to buzz through this. Number one, Christ released us from the old incentive. I'm using the word incentive as a sermon title and as an outline base today. Incentive. You are bombarded with incentives from the moment you get out of do the door, turn the TV on, pick up your smartphone, drive down the interstate. Incentives are everywhere. They're telling you to do something for this reason. Your life will be better if you do it. 
You're a loser if you don't do it. Whether it's money or it's a carrot or it's a stick, there's always some kind of incentive confronting you and I. And it's no different with the Christian life. And so what is changing for Christians is really an incentive when you come to Christ. So here's the outline. Christ released us from the old incentive, which was law-based or law-keeping. Do this or else. That was our incentive. Do this or else. Do this and live. Do this and be blessed. Or don't do this and be cursed. Don't do this and die. That was an incentive. And a lot of Christians are still under that incentive. And I want to help you because I'm your pastor and I care about you. I care about you. Living under that, that incentive will wreck your life. You will be either one of the proudest Christians because you think you're towing the line. Uh, or you'll be a depressed Christian. You'll be a sad moralist. You'll be in despair because you realize the death of your depravity. And you're frustrated by being under the law. So Paul's helping us here. Reject those two errors and, and go with the gospel. So outline one. Christ released us from the old incentive, which was law-based. Second point, the old incentive didn't work anyway, (laughs) and it still doesn't work. It still doesn't work. The law of God being the sole motive or incentive you have for obedience will not work. And here's why. It won't change you. It does not have the power to transform your heart. It does not have the power to change you. And here's the third point. The new incentive bears fruit. God's way. The new incentive bears fruit God's way. And that's the whole point of really being a Christian. It it says that all throughout the Bible, you were saved to be holy and blameless before him. Jesus said this, um, by this, my father is glorified that you what? Bear much fruit, right? And God gets glory that way and you get delight that way. That's the whole point for being a Christian. And that's what, uh, that's what changes. Third point, There's a new incentive that bears fruit God's way. So that's our outline today. Point number one is that Christ released us from the old incentive. And I want to tell another story to help you understand this, okay? I'm sure you get tired of my stories, and eventually I won't have any more. I will have told you about my whole life, and then we'll just have to repeat these. But but here goes, okay? Once upon a time, I lived with a family. I was in my early 20s, And I didn't run away. Uh, I had a great relationship with my parents. It was just the next chapter in my life. I was a brand new Christian. I knew I needed needed mentoring. I needed training. And and that wasn't available to me uh, where I was at for lots of different reasons. I didn't, one of them was me. I was stubborn. I I didn't take advantage of the means that were there. Uh, I pray, Lord, bring a person into my life that's a pastor that can teach me and train me. And God did. Uh, 900 miles away from where I grew up. So I moved from Arkansas to Florida, and I moved in with a pastor and his wife and their family. Had really never met them before. And the reason I moved there, the God's providence and sovereignty, that's another story for another day. But I moved in with them. Uh, I was 23. I was a brand-new believer, and they had four kids, uh, ranging from a teenage son and a teenage daughter to a little toddler. Um, and I lived with them. And that mother was amazing. She, uh, not, not as amazing as my mother, but she was kind of, that was like my home away from home, and she was my mom away from my mom, and they took me in, and they welcomed me as family. And check this out. The mother in that home washed my clothes. She cooked my food. She made my lunches for when I went to work in the mornings uh, to my job in Palm Coast being a, a framer. I framed houses. I built houses. I was a, I was a carpenter. Um, the dad was a pastor. He invested in me. He mentored me. He discipled me. He taught me the Bible. 
It was a sweet setup, man. Uh, the only thing they asked in return was that I use my carpenter skills to do some cosmetic changes to their home. It needed, it needed some upgrades. It was older. It needed some new trim. It needed some flooring, and I was, that's, that was my specialty, was flooring. Don't tell anybody. If you need a new floor, I don't know what you're talking about, okay? Uh, yeah, I know, I know. Everybody needs a carpenter for free, don't they? I get it. Um, now, as I, as I think back on that arrangement, I'm really stunned by their trust because I was a virtual stranger. You know, this was 1998, but still, I was a virtual stranger in my 20-somethings. They didn't know me from Adam, and they put me upstairs in a bonus room above their garage with their teenage son. They had a teenage daughter. The, the trust that they had in me was crazy, and I learned later the, the process of praying and discerning. They knew that God wanted them to extend the invitation for me to move there. Um, but not only was their trust insane, but my setup there was insane. I mean, I, li- I moved to an affluent beach community uh, from northeast Arkansas. I had never even seen the ocean until I was 23. And I got to move here. Listen, check it out, man. Free, uh, free room and board, free laundry. Uh, I got a membership at the YMCA by virtue of being a part of their family. Uh, and, and the only thing I did in return was, was leverage my carpenter skills. That was it. It was a good deal. I lived there. They welcomed me into, into their home. But eventually, it came, it came time to pay rent, right? I had, to, I had to go to work. I had to put my nail apron on and start doing some construction around the, around the house. Now, I had their help. They didn't, they, they didn't know squat about construction. But they would help do spackling and sanding and caulking and painting. And you guys all are familiar with this, aren't you? You've all done it. They would go back and forth to Home Depot. They would get materials. They were, they were my errand boys and my errand girls. So it was a collaborative effort. I did the trim. I did the floors. We got a lot done. And somewhere along the lines, uh, I decided to go back to college. So I worked full-time during the day. I came home, and I worked on their house in the afternoons after my job because I, I got up like at 5 o'clock. And, and you know, in Florida, you, you work early hours when you're in construction, then you get to go home when the heat of the day comes. And then I was a full-time student at night, and I was getting really tired. I mean, I was getting exhausted. Um, and I was at church all the time. This was a big church. They had two Sunday services, a Wednesday night service. They had a class on Tuesday. I was at church all the time. Man, I was just getting tired. I was getting exhausted. It was really laborious. And fatigue set in. Sometimes I wouldn't go to bed until after midnight, and I would get up at the crack of dawn. Had to do homework. I had to study for exams. Nothing slowed down. It seems like more and more stuff got added to my plate, but nothing got taken off of my plate. Have you ever been there? Um... One particular busy week, the mom asked me to plan on helping them tile the upper bathroom. Small bathroom, not a lot of work, but man, it just hit me at the wrong time. It hit me at the wrong time, and I, and I didn't have a really good attitude about it at all. I was really angry. I started thinking about my relationship to this family, um, and I thought, man, um, I don't want to do this. It just it hit me at the wrong time. I wasn't excited about it. I had an exam that week. I was behind on homework. I was tired. I was homesick. And I was beginning to feel the stressors of living with a family that you're not related to by blood. And here's what I mean by that. I knew that they welcomed me there. I knew that they loved me. But uh, the personality type I am, I'm always thinking, man, I I want them to really like me. And I don't want to get kicked out. And I want them to know that I'm pulling my load. So I was always mindful. We would have a family meeting and they would say now, they called it a family powwow. They would say, look, we got to do a better job of taking care of all the, of all the little kids. And in my mind, I would think that was all directed at me. It's like, oh, okay, I got to do, 
I got to do a better job. The other kids are like, meh, they live there. They're not getting kicked out. And I just felt the pressures and the strain of that. She was saying, now we got to make sure all the cars are parked in the driveway, not on the road. And, and there was just, it wasn't a lot of rules, but in my mind, I was starting to feel fatigued and thinking, man, what in the world is going on? So that was a critical time in my life uh, with that family. Back to tiling that bathroom. I had a really bad attitude about it. I told her I was, uh, it was a busy week, but I would do it if I had time later, depending on how soon I got done with my job in the afternoon. Well, here's what happened that week. We got done early from framing. And you know what I did? I went to the beach. I went to the beach and I parked my truck and I went to sleep. I took a nap because I was exhausted. I couldn't do it anymore, man. Couldn't do it anymore. Um, but I only did that about two days in a row. I started to feel guilty. There weren't cell phones back then. And I thought, man, I, I need to be helping this family. So I finally went home and, and I did the work. I didn't want to do it, but they insisted. So I tiled that bathroom. I huffed and I puffed. I grumbled by my facial expression, my countenance. They knew I do not want to do this and I'm not happy about doing this. Um, and then I went to bed and I woke up exhausted and I got the lunch that she prepared me and I went to work and the whole time I was thinking, man, I don't know, I don't know if I want to do this any longer. I don't know, that family's probably going to kick me out if I don't do it anymore. And, and then I opened up my lunchbox and I found a card that the mother had written to me. Now listen, guys, this is over 20 years ago and I still have the card. You want to see it? See, that's why we use PowerPoint. Here's the card. I don't know if you can see this or not. I'm going to read it to you, Okay. And, I, and, and listen to me, before you read it, look up here for a minute. This changed everything for me, everything. It changed everything for me. And the way I related to that family, this was a reminder, hey, you're not ever getting kicked out of this house. You're not ever getting kicked out of this family. You're here because we want you here. You're here because we love you. You're our brother. You're our son. So check this out. This is what it says if you can't read it. I don't know why I blocked the name off. It's not a, not a secret, but... Tommy, thank you for doing the tile work. <laughs> that would have been enough, man. I know this is a bad time for you, so there's understanding. There's gratitude. There's understanding. Thank you for your friendship. Oh, now there's friendship. We all love you like family. I'll get through it. Give me a minute. We all love you like family. I will pray for you about your test and for tonight, I had a big exam that night that I didn't have time to study for because I tiled the bathroom. So there's compassion. There's partnership. Our family has been blessed to have known you. We consider you a son and a brother. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Now listen, there's not one command in that card. It's not, hey, we got to do a better job. You were really grumpy last night. And, and my husband and I are praying and thinking, we don't know if this arrangement is going to work out much longer. We're, we're going to need to see more. So step it up. Step it up. We need you home at 3 o'clock. You may need to, to reduce some of your class load. None of that. Not one command. All of this is just indicatives. It's just all promises. It's a reminder like, hey, you, we receive you. We welcome you. We love you. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you think I went to the beach the next day? No, I didn't go to the beach the next day or the next day or the next day or ever or ever. You know what I did? I went home and I said, hey, there's more stuff I can do to your house. You need a lot more work than we've done. And I actually have been holding out on you. I can do a lot more. <laughs> so we built a mother-in-law suite. We built a back patio. I added 500 square feet on their living room and I lived there six years. 
six years. In fact, they couldn't get rid of me. When I got married, Sarah and I spent, didn't we, honey? We spent the night over there all the time. Now, <laughs> why in the world am I telling you this? Because my incentive changed. And all it took was finally understanding my relationship to that family was not based on how well I worked or how poorly I worked. It was based on love. That was my incentive. And I think that's what a lot of people, a lot of Christians forget. And Paul knows that. And that's why he wrote this letter. He said, you're dead to that old incentive. You're dead to it. Something fundamentally has changed. And listen, if you want to put on your nerdy hat for a minute, the New Testament's written in Greek. And when he says you've been released from the law, you have died to the law, that is something called an aorist passive tense. It means it happened in the past and you didn't do anything to secure it. It was done to you. Something happened to you that changed the way you relate to God. Okay? And the aorist tense means punctiliar, done, finished, complete. It's not a process. It's not building up to something. You're not eventually going to get there one day. It's done. You're released. That's why he uses the analogy of a marriage. If you're in a marriage, it's till death do you part, right? And finally, when a spouse... Not finally. You're not looking forward to that. <laughs> oh, man. All right. I told you it was a late night, right? In the event that your spouse dies, you are released. You're released from that which held you down. You're released from that, and there's another powerful compound word here, kata echo. You're released from that which held you down. Downhold is what the word means. You've been released from it. And that word released, it just means it's annulled, it's abolished, it's loosed, it's done with, it's gone away. And, and Paul wants us to celebrate this and know that this is good news. But now something's changed. You no longer relate to God on the basis of a covenant of works. Because that law, you couldn't keep it anyway. Somebody had to step in for you. Somebody had to keep it on your behalf. So you don't relate to God based on your law-keeping performance and your law-keeping ability. You relate to God based on Christ's law-keeping performance and Christ's law-keeping ability. And look, I know everyone say, yeah, I know that we were justified by faith and not by works. That's right. Hopefully I've taught you that well. Paul's taught you that well. That's the first six chapters. But here's what I want to tell you. Not only are you not justified by law-keeping, you are not sanctified by law-keeping. Here's what I mean by that. You don't progressively grow into greater and greater Christ-likeness by focusing on obeying the law of God. That will not change your heart. And that's what sanctification is. It's change. It's transformation. And some of you are you're thinking, well, what is he saying? What I'm saying is there's a new and better way that God has given us. And it's not a way that does away with the law. It just does away with the way you related to the law. The law still has to be kept. It was kept perfectly by Christ. And now, because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are actually given incentive to keep the law. You see the law as, oh, this is the will of the one who saved me. It's like living with that family. Oh, they need their house to be added on to. I love them. They love me. I want to do that. I want to do that because it pleases them. I don't do that so they won't kick me out. They're never kicking me out. I'm playing with house money here. Does that make sense? That's what the Apostle Paul is teaching here. That's how we relate to the law of God now that we're Christians. So that's point one. The old incentive is canceled. The old incentive is canceled. Now listen, I want to make sure and repeat this. 
Paul says that you died. He doesn't say that the law died. The law did not need to die. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's per- he'll defend it the next section. It's perfect. It's holy. It's just. It's good. If you look at the Ten Commandments, this is how life works best, to quote a Jesus storybook Bible that I like. This is how life works best. This is not bad for you. This is good for you. Telling the truth is good for you. Not coveting, coveting, not coveting other people's possessions is actually good for you. By the way, would you, if you were writing up a code for a city, would you include that? I get don't murder, don't steal, you know, don't lie, but isn't coveting a victimless crime? No, it's not. Coveting will eat you to pieces inside, wanting something that doesn't belong to you. You say, that doesn't hurt anybody, it hurts you, is who it hurts. So the law didn't die. It didn't need to die. You needed to die. You needed to die to that way of relating to God. And that's what happened. Something, and and, and to to emphasize this again, it was something passively that was done to you. Being a Christian does not mean, hey, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to shine myself up like a a new shoe. I'm going to change. I'm going to exert more willpower. New Year's resolution kind of idea. No. Being a Christian means something happened to you. That's why words like quickened and born again and regenerated and being made alive are used in the Bible. You didn't make yourself a Christian. When I talk to somebody that's sharing their, their salvation story, and I say, tell me, how, did, how was it you came to be a Christian? And they say, oh, I just grew up in it. Doop, doop, red flag. You did not grow up in it. Christianity is not some kind of cultural dynamic. It's a personal relationship that happens between you and Jesus Christ when you are changed, when you repent of your sins and you turn to him. Or they say, you know, I'm just, I'm turning over a new leaf. I'm going to make some changes in my life. Well, so is every other religion in the world. What's the difference? (laughs) That's what's so dangerous about thinking you're going to relate to God by law keeping. You don't wake up one day and say, you know what? I'm going to become a Christian. I'm going to start taking the Ten Commandments seriously. (laughs) How's that working out for you? That's not what it means. It means to repent that you you can't keep the law and to embrace the one who did keep it on your behalf and trust him. And and the Bible says what happens in that moment is that you died to the law and that then you can belong to another. That's the beauty of this passage is that you belong to somebody. You finally belong to the one whose relationship with you matters the most. Okay, here's point two. We're doing good, 25 minutes in. The old incentive didn't work. It didn't work. Look at verse 5 in Romans 7. I think we have it in a slide here. Yeah. Do you guys see that? For while we were living in the flesh, and by the way, this will blow your mind too. I'll, I'll show you this next. In the flesh is e- equated to under the law in this passage. You know the Bible says, in the flesh you cannot please God. Did you know that? Romans 8 says that. In the flesh... You can't please God. Nothing done apart from faith is pleasing to God. In the flesh, you can't please God. So under the law, you can't please God. Something has to change. So Romans 7 says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So here's the shocking, surprising thing. We, we often celebrate the law. We have communities where we elevate the moral law of God. Uh, and, and we remind each other about it, and that's good, that's right, we should do that. But so often we begin to put our trust in that as, as incentive for a changed life. 
and it does not work. In fact, what's so shocking about this verse, and it's not the first time we've seen this, is that applying the law of God to a problem, it, it has a greenhouse effect on it. It makes it worse. Now, it got really quiet, and that's good because you heard me right. That's what I said. That's what Paul said. Often, the law of God stirs up your sinful passions. It has the opposite effect that you think it will. And I've showed you that. I'm gonna, not going to kick a dead horse. You see a sign that says, don't step on the grass. Come on, what do you want to do? You see fish swimming in a, in, a, in a brook, and it says, no fishing off bridge. What do you want to do? You see a sign that says, don't covet, and then you see a brand new BMW in the driveway. What do you do? The law stirs up these desires. It doesn't work. The old incentive didn't work. It was never intended to work. We're using the law actually the wrong way when we try to leverage it and crowbar ourselves into change. That is not how it works. Now, listen, I will say this just for the sake of clarity. Willpower is a good thing to exude. And listen, when you're about to do something terrible, use any means you can to restrain yourself. Okay, if you're angry and there's a rock here and the person who made you angry and you're going to hurl the rock at them, uh, maybe you're not meditating on the gospel in that moment. Maybe that's not going to do it for you. But look, you can tell yourself, if I do this, I may go to jail. That's okay for an incentive in the moment, okay? Or you can tell yourself, I may kill them, and then we'll both be in trouble. Or you can tell yourself, I'm going to hate myself in the morning if I do this, and I'm going to lose all respect for myself. That's okay. You use whatever leverage you can in the moment. Uh, Psalm 73 is one of my favorite psalms, and ASAP is... is uh, He's, he's lamenting the fact that he looks out in the world and he sees wicked people prospering. He looks at his own life and he sees himself being chastened. And it's too painful for him to understand it. And he says something like this in the middle of the psalm. He says, if I would have talked about this, he's the worship leader. He says, if I would have spoken about this, I would have been unfaithful to the generation of your children. And that's, he's being a gentleman. He's saying, look, I wish I could talk about this at church, but I can't. I'll cause people to stumble. That's not the greatest restraint in the world is to say, I can't do this or it'll hurt people. But he used it in the moment to stop him. It's like if you're sliding off a mountain, use whatever means you can to stop yourself. Kick, claw, grab dirt, use your teeth, whatever. Um, But if that's the only motivation and incentive and leverage you ever use to restrain yourself, you are going to live a defeated Christian life. And I'll give you an illustration for that. Check this out. So, let's say that Uh, you are a baby bird in the forest and you fall out of your nest and you can't fly yet. That's why you fell out of the nest, right? And you fall right directly into the sight of a red fox. Your lunch, unless you do something, right? So what do you do? Well, you're going to run as fast as your little bird legs can carry you and you're going to find a place to hide. And let's say that you find one. At the base of a trunk, there's a hollowed out part where you can barely fit in there and the fox can't get to you. So you escape, and and, 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 that fox, he can't get you, right? Okay, that's great. You escape the fox. Now, let me ask you a question. What if that's the only way that you ever escape getting eaten by the fox? That's the only way you've ever known to get out of danger. That's the only way you've ever known to escape a threat, is by running away and hiding. What's going to happen to you? You're going to forget your main purpose as a bird, Right? What is your main purpose as a bird? To fly, right? Eventually you need to get to this point where the fox is like, oh man, dang. I guess something changed about the bird. That's right, it did. And here's what I think happens to many Christians. They're that little bird and they run and they hide every single time. That's the way they 
protect themselves against sin and temptation. Uh, and eventually, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Eventually, you're not going to run fast enough. Or, God forbid, uh, eventually you're going to get eaten by the fox. Okay? That's, that's how the illustration ends. Remember our little poem last week? John Bunyan wrote, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Much better things the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. That's what you were created to do. You were created to fly. But here's so often what happens. I'm going to be brutally honest with you because I love you. Uh, I've been to conferences time and time again. And it seems like so often what I encounter at those conferences is a Fox conference. Every year they talk about, now look, this year you need to be aware the fox is faster than he was last year. And it's so scary. It's so dangerous. And we're going to talk about the fox at the whole conference. Or we're going to talk about, look, uh, you need to do a better job of running away from the fox. And we're going to tell you there's a better path to the base of that tree. There's actually a safer tree that you don't know about. And we'll have this week-long conference all about that. And the 500-pound elephant so often as the room is, can we talk about learning to fly? <laughs> because that's really what we're supposed to be doing. And, and the, the, the lost dynamic is the gospel. Is How does the finished work of Christ factor into the incentive that you and I need to obey? I mean, Paul is saying that all throughout this passage, and it's not the only place that he will say it. I'll give you another illustration. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul is writing to a congregation, and he wants them to make a donation to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And uh, man, that's, that hits home for a pastor. So let me, let, me, let me bring it home. Let's say that I wanted to talk to you about money. It's very awkward and uncomfortable for Christian leaders and pastors to talk to their people about money, isn't it? I ain't scared to do it, and I will do it when we get to it in the Bible, all right? So here's the Apostle Paul writing a letter to Christians, and he says, hey, I want you to make a donation, a sizable donation, a magnanimous donation to these poor Christians who are in Jerusalem. What do you think the Apostle Paul uses for incentive? What do people so often use for incentive for money? It's like, let me show you these pictures of these poor Christians in Jerusalem and they're haggard, you know, they got ripped clothes and they got, they don't have any food and they're walking around in ripped sandals. Paul didn't do that. He didn't press on their willpower and say, you know what, you guys really have it good in Corinth. That's a very affluent and wealthy city and you should really be ashamed of yourself that you don't give more than you give. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, you know what, giving is part of your Christian duty and if you don't give, you're in danger of hellfire. Paul didn't say any of that. You know what he said? He said, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, how though he was rich, he became poor for our sake. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Has that just gone right over your head when you read that? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where did Paul go? He went to the, he went to the big guns. He went, he went and he nuked, he nuked the Corinthians with gospel. That's the greatest incentive that you can face as a Christian for doing something. And say, look, I want you... I want you to think about the gospel. Think about what Jesus did on our behalf until it changes your heart. That's what the Apostle Paul did there. That's what he does so many places. Here's another place I want to show you. Titus chapter 2. Can you guys see that? Is the font too little? I can't read it back there, so I'm going to read it right here. Got to be careful here. Big drop. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, Training us to renounce ungodliness. Now stop right there. For all you grammarians in here, what's the subject of this sentence? You can say it. It's okay. Grace, thank you. 
Grace is the, is, is the subject. What's the action? What's grace doing? Training us. Grace is going to train you to do something. Let's check this list out. What kind of grace? Saving grace. The grace of God has appeared that brings salvation to all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us for all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, let me ask you a question. How can you train yourself to resist ungodliness, to live self-controlled, obedient lives in a godless age? How can you do that? How do you restrain yourself? Because here, the Apostle Paul says, the grace of God trains us. And that word train, I'm going to put my nerd hat on again. It's a word that means to argue. (laughs) Have you ever argued with yourself with the gospel? That's what Paul is training you to do here. That is the highest, most powerful, most beautiful, most explosive incentive that you and I have for obedience. And I know that saying this in some context is... It angers people. They think that somehow you're, you're lessening the power of the law. And all you're doing is pointing out that the law has no power. It's, it's the gospel that has the power. Now look, here's the last part of this in, in, in chapter 7. Look at it with me, verses 5 and 6. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. In other words, if, if your incentive for obedience is your performance according to the law, you will bear fruit, but it will be death fruit. It will be rotten. But now, verse 6, we're getting to the end here, guys, so relax. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, which held us down, so that, what's the end game here? So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So this is, the Apostle Paul's mentioning something here, He's mentioning the Holy Spirit. This is capital S, Holy Spirit, okay? He's saying there is a new, more powerful, and better way to serve, and it is in the Spirit, not in the letter. And by letter, he just means the tablets, the two tablets, the words, the Ten Commandments. It was written on stone tablets as externals. He's saying there's there's a new way that the Holy Spirit is going to usher in. Now, this is Paul just introducing this. He's just introducing it. In fact... I'm so, Cliff, I'm so excited about chapter 8, man. You and I are going to have to get together and have lunch. Chapter 8 is an expose on the endless power of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be incredible. I know that makes a lot of some church folk nervous, especially Baptists, talking about that. But Paul talks about it, and we're going to talk about it, but he's just introducing it. This is just wading into the shallow end. He's saying, look, there's a new way. There is a better way. There is a more powerful way. There's a, there's a more powerful incentive that's actually going to bear fruit, and it's according to the endless power of the Holy Spirit being released in you, which happens when you believe the gospel. You get the Holy Spirit in the second that you believe the gospel, right? Now, I want to show you this in one more place. And, and usually, guys, I'm, I, I do apologize for bouncing all around the Bible. I just want you to know this is the comprehensive teaching of the Bible. This is not some isolated little Romans 7 thing. This is everywhere. And I think I have it. 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 3. If you want to turn there, if you have it, if not, I'll bail you out. It's up here. <sighs> Man, I got to slow down for a minute. Are you guys tracking with me? All right. Yeah. <laughs> here we go. 
Now the Lord is the what? Spirit. All right. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Not captivity, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the what? Spirit. So you're saying, okay, what's this new and better way? What's this more powerful incentive that the Holy Spirit ushers in? It's this. The Holy Spirit helps you to see Christ and all of his glory and all of his beauty and all of his power and become like him. This is a verse on what sanctification really is. Growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ, you know what it is? You are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. That's what you've been predestined to, to do is be conformed to the image of Jesus. And how does that happen? The Holy Spirit opens your eyes and shows you more of Christ and you're transformed from, from one from one level of glory to the next level of glory. And that's where there's freedom. That's where there's beauty. That's where there's power. That's where there's real change. Uh, that's the dynamic. Anything other than that, living the, according to the old way, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, says, Cursed is the person who lives under the law uh, and continues in that. Here, let me, I don't want to misquote that. Let me put that up here for you. Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So if, if you are placing your relationship to God, if you're basing that on how well you keep the law of God, you're putting yourself under a curse. That's not a place you want to... I love that the Bible uses that. You know what? A, a curse is a, it's a powerful word, isn't it? It means that... All of, all of creation stands up and applauds your damnation. That's what a curse means. But you know what Christ did on our behalf? Not only did he keep the law, and Romans chapter 8 is going to tell us that we're free from the condemnation of the law because Christ has been condemned for us. And now we had the Holy Spirit that enables us, us to keep the law. Um, but that Christ became a curse for us. He stood in our place. He became a curse so that you and I could become a blessing. And uh, that's, that's the new incentive, and that's the third point. That's the third point, is that this new incentive bears fruit, and it bears fruit God's way. Uh, there was a man in, in London in 1770. He's a very simple man. His name was William Romaine, not the guy that the lettuce was named after. That was another guy. But this guy, he, he was a brand-new Christian, and he said, look... Uh, all these criminals are going to jail, and they're, all they're doing is giving them more laws as incentive to, to get better and be rehabilitated. He said, why don't we write to Parliament and, and find a way to get the gospel in print and to get these to the people who were in prison? And people made fun of him until George Whitfield came and started preaching the gospel to those prisoners, and they began to, to dynamically and uh, be transformed and, and be changed people. That happened then. That happens now. I'll say it this way. I know that Christians for a long time focused on getting the Ten Commandments back in the courthouse. And I get that. I get it. We're concerned about morality. But do you know what would be ten times more powerful than getting the Ten Commandments in the courtroom? What would, what would be more powerful than that? Getting the gospel in the courtroom and getting the gospel in the prisons. And I appreciate, Craig, I appreciate your ministry, man, with Kairos. That's what they do. They take the gospel to inmates. There's, there's other ministries that have done that and has dramatic impact uh, on prisoners because 
It's telling them that there's a, a better, a more powerful, a more beautiful incentive uh, for living the Christian life. And look, there's a lot more that could be said about that, but we're going to stop there for now. I pray. I do pray. I told my wife this morning, I said, I have so much that I want to say, and I'm having to cut a bunch of stuff on the editing, editing room floor and let it fall to the ground. So I just trust that the Lord is going to use this. This is, again, just an introduction into the rest of Romans chapter 7. Uh, we're going to get through this. It's going to get challenging. It's going to get difficult, but there's glory at the end. So I'm going to stop, and I want to pray for you as your pastor. I want to pray for you. Maybe you don't know why God brought you to Grace Life on a Sunday like this. Maybe this was exactly the message that you needed to hear. Maybe you have been basing your relationship to God uh, on how well you keep the law, and you feel like a hamster running on that wheel. You're just trying to do more, pedal faster, try harder, do better, and eventually you're going to change. But listen, guys, obedience and change are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. The Holy Spirit has been unleashed in you to bring about true change that's lasting and that pleases God so that you can bear fruit. And that's what we're after. So let's pause and pray. Uh, and we're going to have our prayer team in the back. If, if you want to take this opportunity to go and share a burden with a brother or sister in Christ to pray for you, if you just want to sit quietly in your seat and reflect, we're going to hear a, a song of reflection here. So let's pause and let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the power of your word, the authority of your word, the clarity of your word. Thank you for the promise in this passage. There's not really any commands in this passage. We're going to get to those later. This is Paul telling us what has happened. He's explaining what has happened to us. He wants us to understand so that we can bear fruit that glorifies God, that pleases the Father, that other Christians will see, that unbelievers will see, and they're going to want to know about this hope that is within us so that we can share it with meekness and with fear. And I pray that if anybody in this room has been hung up or confused, about the law, or maybe they've fallen off on the legalistic side, or maybe they've fallen off on the antinomian side, I pray that you would bring some helpful correction today, Lord, and, and remind them of the, the resident power of the Holy Spirit of God has been unleashed inside them. He is dwelling there to help them, to aid them, uh, to liberate them, and to give them powerful obedience and resistance to temptation and sin. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now listen, before they, they sing... We're going to have some announcements at the very end, but I want to make sure that we get this. Next week is Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday, and we're anticipating a host of guests that are going to be here. And one of the things we try to value and prize at this church is relationally driven evangelism. I know it's uh, some people feel compelled to, to put signs in their yard for Easter. That's fine. We did that at one point, too. Uh, then we ran out, or they got stolen, or people turned them around and used them for yard sale signs. Uh, we try to do everything we can to encourage you to be relationally driven. So here's what we've done. Jessica Malcolm and a team of ladies from one of our community groups have put together, uh, they're called succulent plants. They're really plump and, and juicy and they're little. And they decorated those plants and they have a Grace Life tag. And there's one for every single family in here. There's 64 plants. Please take those today. Take those home with you and pray about a neighbor that you can take that potted plant over to with that grace life card to say look you know it's a really special time of the year where everyone's finding a place to worship and celebrate the resurrection and, and god put you on my heart i wanted to invite you and your family to come with us to grace life next week so please take that if you don't those will die and they'll go to waste uh take a plant take two plants we don't have 64 families in here today probably we got more than 64 people take those home to you pray about who you want to share that with 
and pray for our Easter service next week. Really excited about what the Lord has. All right, I think that's enough, TJ. You, you guys sing, and uh, we'll be in the back. Yeah. 
more time, guys. Oh, God, you're so Pastor Tommy said next week, Easter Sunday. So the uh, second one that he was speaking of looked kind of like this. They have a card that says, know that you are loved. Hand them out to a neighbor. Remind them that they are loved and welcome here at Grace Life. They are out in the lobby as soon as you walk out to the right. Uh, next next week, we the student ministry normally meets next week, but because of it being Easter Sunday, we will not have student ministry next week, but I challenge you, you to bring a friend to church. Uh, one more announcement. For Grace Life, if you have ordered a t-shirt, they are also in the lobby for pickup on the right-hand side. Uh, Megan has put little sticky notes on there that has your name. There's still a lot of them that are unclaimed. So if you ordered a Grace Life t-shirt, they are out in the lobby to the right-hand side as you exit. All right, we have a charge here at Grace Life. Uh, it's not, um, it's just a reminder that God is good and we want to share that goodness with everyone else in our neighborhoods. So if you will stand with me, we will say this together. I am a witness. I have been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent. <laughs> 